G'day everyone, hello. Oh my goodness. G'day everyone, how are you? Merry Christmas, wonderful to see you, blah, blah, blah. Oi, let me say straight up, what an anticlimax, the lights. Hi. But can I just say, can we put our hands together for our incredible, can we give thanks to God with our hands for our incredible, wonderful musicians? Aren't they incredible and the best? Oh my gosh. It's so uh, wonderful. And uh, it's a wonderful privilege for us to, to be able to celebrate Christmas together. Christians all around the world have been doing this for thousands of years. You know, there's a kind of a um, furphy around the place that Christianity is dying. But I don't know if you know this, but there's more Christians on the planet today than there ever have been in the history of the world. Christianity is the world's biggest religion and is growing and growing and growing. That's by percentage and by sheer number of population as God continues to call his people home. What a wonderful thing that we're part of something so much bigger. Um, now, right at the core of the Christmas message um, is a theme. Okay? It's, there's an idea. Uh, an idea which I'm utterly persuaded uh, is much, much bigger than the holiday that we celebrate every year. It's wonderful to celebrate Jesus' birthday. Hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip. It's great to do that. But more important than that is this idea, this theme behind why he is born, the purpose of his birth. Now, to get us thinking, I want you to think about the purpose of your life. Let me ask you, if someone on the street came to you and asked you to articulate it, why are you here? What's its meaning? Why, why are you alive? How would you answer that question? I read an article recently uh, which tried to answer this. It was in an Australian newspaper. And it went into detail about the type of things the average Australian life will contain. Okay, it started with the life expectancy of an Australian. Does anyone know what the life expectancy is of the average Aussie? Listen. 83, did someone say 83? Mamma mia, that's incredible. Yes, it is 83. However, it's 85 for women, 80 for men. So, no good. But no, no, I mean, wonderful for you ladies. Terrific. Not so great for us. They ran it to the middle, 83. Now, that's interesting. However, what's even more interesting is what we will spend that time doing. The 83 years that you've got, they've compiled all our time together, and this is the data of what our life will look like. In that time, 83 years, we're going to spend... 25 years asleep. An additional five years with our eyes shut blinking. Does that seem right? That just seems. What about winking? You know, do you get it for that as well? Nonetheless, 30 years of your life gone. Okay, eyes shut. But what about when your eyes are open? Oi, check this out. You're going to spend 11 years watching television, 12 years at work. 18 years online. Now, I know that's not true because my phone gave me a notification last week which said I spent 18 years online last week. Okay, so I don't know what it's talking about, 18 years. That's, I mean, there's no way that's, that's accurate representation. Now, that stuff is getting a little bit like, oh, there's a lot of things I don't want to do there. But it gets worse. Have a look at this one. You're going to spend eight years shopping for women. Five years shopping for men. So ladies, you are going to live an extra five years. Three of those years will be at Woolworths, okay? <laughs> and if Woolworths is shut, IGA. Listen, this is the way that it's going to be, okay? That's how you're going to spend your life. Now, that's bad enough, but check this one out. Seven years eating and drinking. That sounds pretty good. 18 months waiting in line, girls, at the shops, in line. Six months at red lights. Six months of your life. Here's my question. As you look at that data, you look at that information of what makes a life. Is that it? 
You know? Let me ask you honestly, as you consider your life, reflect upon the existence that you have, is that it? Is your life really just a combination, a little jigsaw you know, puzzle of pieces of work and internet and TV and cues and shopping and that's what your life is about? Or is it possible, as you believe already deep down, that your life has more meaning than that? That there's more to life than that? That actually you were created for something more than those things, something far, far bigger uh, than all of those things put together combined. (laughs) The Bible uh, makes a radical statement about the purpose of your life, and it is radical for a whole variety of reasons. But one of the reasons that we probably don't consider is just look around you now. We've got a couple of hundred people here. All of you are utterly unique, and not just because your mum says so. You are unique, okay? You are unique scientifically, you have unique DNA, you're unique, unique physically. There has never been another version of you that has ever existed. In the history of the world, around 100 billion people have lived, so they say. 8 billion people on the planet today. And yet, there has never been another one of you. All of us incredibly diverse. Our God is a God of great diversity. Oi, great diversity, incredible a kaleidoscope of different people. And yet, at the core of the Bible is a message that says that we all share together a common purpose. Isn't that incredible? Think about it. Think on it for a moment. Black, white, rich, poor, happy, unhappy, student, tradie, unemployed. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done. We all unite around a purpose, a common purpose. And yet this purpose that the Bible offers is utterly radical, utterly revolutionary, utterly counterintuitive and countercultural. And yet I'm utterly persuaded it's utterly true. So what does the Bible say about your purpose? Well, listen to this. Don't miss this. The Bible says that you will never, ever understand your purpose. It is impossible for you to grasp hold of why you're alive until you understand the purpose and life of Jesus. There is no other way. It is not possible for you to work out life's purpose without understanding the purpose of the life of Jesus. Let's add a bit of Christmas to this. It's not possible for you to work out why you were born until you can comprehend, grasp hold of, and articulate why Jesus was born. His story explains your story. And if you don't know his story, you'll never know your own. My friends, that message is right at the heart of the Bible passage we're looking at today. It's right at the heart of it. And so what I want us to do today, uh, tonight I should say, uh, is pretty simple, but I hope interesting and, um, well, if it's not, suffer, I don't know, it is what it is. Okay, what we're going to do is look at this Bible passage and I'm going to try and answer three questions. Okay, number one. Now remember, the purpose of Jesus explains your purpose. You want to know what your life is about? Understand the life of Jesus. So what are we looking at? This passage, what does it say about who Jesus is? What does it say about why Jesus is? And then what do those things mean about why and who you are? Who is Jesus? What's his purpose? And then what does it mean about the purpose that you have while you're here? Let me give you a little bit of context. Um, if you've got that piece of paper, have that in front of you there, because that will really help as you see as we go through this Bible passage today. As we've already heard, this Bible passage is actually written, set just before Jesus is born, around six months before he's born. It's called Zechariah's Song, and it's written and spoken by Zechariah, who is Jesus' uncle. Okay, he's married to a woman called Elizabeth. Elizabeth is a cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
Okay. Now, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is a fascinating one. They are um, a lovely couple, loved by the people who know them, uh, but they're in their old age. Okay. They're into their, their 70s, and they, they, ha- they don't have any children. They were unable to have kids. It caused great grief to them. And yet around six months before Mary falls pregnant, an angel appears to, to Zechariah and says, you are going to have a kid. You are going to have a son, and you will name him John. Fast forward nine months, and here we have it. John is born. And that baby, John, becomes, in the opinion of Jesus, the greatest human being who has ever lived after Jesus. His name is John the Baptist, incredibly prominent, important person in the history of the Bible, John the Baptist. Now, you can imagine the reception. You can imagine. Everyone loves babies, man. Even Unwanted babies, like they have to go, ah, it's still a baby. But this greatly desired baby that this couple have been waiting for forever, you can imagine the party, the excitement. It's natural that Zechariah would write a song thanking God for this child. But here's what's fascinating. Have a look at it here in front of you. What you see, verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And then guess what he does? He doesn't praise God for the birth of his son, John. Instead, he praises God for the yet-to-be birth, impending birth of his nephew, Jesus. Yeah, he talks a little bit about John at the end, but he only refers to John in relation to how John relates to Jesus. Zechariah is pumped about the birth of his nephew. Seems to kind of throw aside the birth of his son. Now, why is that? Well, it's not because he's a pumped-up uncle, okay? That's not what's going on here. No, no, no. This is not personal excitement. Zechariah is excited, her heart overflowing with joy and gladness about this, not because of the personal difference his nephew and son will have to his family, but rather because of the cosmic consequences the birth of Jesus would have to every single human being who ever lived, to you, to me, to us. Let me put it like this. My friends, I do not know why you have come in here tonight. I do not know the motivation that's brought you, whether you've been bribed, guilt-tripped, whether you've been promised free food at the end of it, whether you have to come, whether you've chosen to come, whether this is your first time, whether this is your millionth time, I do not know. But I want to say the Bible is clear. You are not here by accident. God is here. He's always here. And he's in control. And he wants you to hear what he says in his word today. And Zechariah is convinced, as am I, that what we're going to hear tonight is the most important thing, the most important news you can ever hear. So what is it? that he says, that is so important about Jesus to transform your life. Well, point one, it goes straight to the core of who Jesus is. Have a look at verse 68 and 69. I really want to set up a camp around the first two verses of this reading. Okay, the first two verses, because this is where we're going to spend all of our time focusing in on both the identity and the mission of Jesus. This is what he says. Zechariah begins his song by saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Now, hold on a second. What does that mean? Well, Zechariah begins by thanking God, giving blessing to God. Why? Because God has come to his people through the birth of Jesus. As Jesus comes to earth, that is, as God is coming to earth. And at what purpose of it? It is to redeem his people. Now, redeem or as others know, redemption, is a very specific term. It's got connections originally with the slave trade. When someone was put in slavery, they were sold into slavery, they could could have their freedom purchased 
But the freedom would have to be purchased at a price. Someone would have to pay that price. And when you would set the slave free, that's called redemption. Redeeming a slave. Setting a slave free. Liberating them. What are we being told here? That in the midst of the longing of humanity, the longing of all people everywhere for life's meaning and purpose against the suffering and against the pain, God, through Jesus, has come to his people and is offering liberation, life, redemption. But how is he accomplishing it? Look at verse 69. He has raised up, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now listen, this is the key verse. It's really weird sounding, but I promise it's the key to understanding all of it. What does it mean? Well, there's two two sort of phrases in here. The first one is horn of salvation. God has raised up a horn of salvation. Horn of salvation is a term that's only used three times. In the Bible, it's a title. It's a title like the word Christ or the word Messiah. It's a title. It's used twice in the Old Testament to refer exclusively to Yahweh God, God the Father. Only once is it used in the New Testament. You're reading it right here, and it's referring here to Jesus. What does it mean? Well, horn in the Old Testament of the Bible was used to represent as a symbol strength. We're not talking horn like like a bugle. We're talking horn like an animal. I won't do the noise. Like a goat or a deer or a unicorn. Not a unicorn. Okay, that's what we're talking about when we talk about a horn. Strength, might, power. But then we're also hearing that this Jesus is in the house of his servant David. What does that mean? It means that his lineage comes from King David. Who's King David? Well, David and Goliath, that David. Around a thousand years before Jesus, the greatest king ever in Israel's history. There was a promise made to him that through your line, there will be an eternal kingdom. A king will come who will reign and rule over the world forever. And this king, this promised one, became known as Messiah or Christ. Both those words mean anointed one and king. So what does that phrase mean when it comes to Jesus? My friends, this is astonishing. And if it's not astonishing to you, it's because your heart and your ears have become so blasé to hearing it, it's just become numb. But open them up and understand what we're hearing. What is Zechariah saying about Jesus? Here's what it is. He's saying that even though this baby's first bed will be a dog bowl for donkeys, even though his first bedroom will be a backyard shed, even though he is so insignificant a human being that no hotel would even open up a foyer for him to be born in, even though that as he lived, he would be entirely anonymous in a backwater of Israel called Nazareth that we never would have heard of unless he came from there, even though he never wrote a song, he never wrote a book, no one drew a picture of him while he lived, he never fought in a war, he never wore a robe except that his torturers forced around him, he never wore a crown except one made of thorns that his torturers shoved onto his head. He lived a life that was on the surface level entirely insignificant. He never did any of the things that we normally associate with power, authority or majesty. What is Zechariah saying about that child yet to be born, Jesus? Jesus is king. And not a king. He is the king. King, God's promised king. But it doesn't end there. Because the more that you read of Jesus' biographies in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the more it becomes clear that Jesus claims about himself that he is not only the Messiah, he is the Messiah, but he's not only the promised king, he actually also is God. He is God's king and he is God, the eternal son of God, utterly divine. 
Now let's just press pause. I often do this in sermons to wake people up. Excuse me. Listen, listen. What does all of that mean? Well, I, I used to... Um, I didn't become a Christian until I was 28 years of age. Uh, but my family are Christians, so at Christmas and Easter, um, I used to be forced, no, bribed, to, to be fair, bribed to come to church. I was Anglican, Church of England, COV, Christmas or Easter, you could choose, that's what it's called. That joke works really well in the morning where people understand what that is. Not so much here, don't sweat it. Okay, so in essence, I would come to church at Christmas, I would hear things like what I've just said as the idiot up the front drone, on and on and on. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And I'd see Christians would froth over that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Woo. Well, we didn't do that because we are Anglican. We were like, oh, wonderful. But, but. Oh, that girl. There'd be one question that would bounce around in my mind every time I heard a phrase like that, a term like that, a title like that. Here it is. The question. Who cares? Honestly, who cares? Oi, he's king. Congratulations. Wonderful. He's a king from 2,000 years ago. What's he got to do with me? Nothing. He's God. Okay, I'll sort it out later. So what? In what way does his kingship or his godliness have any relevance to my life? And I think a huge part of that, I've got to confess, was because when I would think of male members of the monarchy, I would usually think of this fella, this guy here. Now, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a monarchist, I'm a nothing kiss. I do not care about the royal family one way or the other. My wife likes the crown. Do you like the crown? <laughs> Terrible show. <laughs> now, listen. Whatever you make of King Charles, we can all agree, has your life changed in any way whatsoever since the passing of his dear, his dear old mother to him? The coins haven't even come in yet. Nothing. Nothing. What change has there been in your life? Nothing. He has no impact on our life whatsoever. Not only our life, he has no impact on the life of most people. Even over in England, I don't know if you know this, he's entirely powerless. He can't start a war with someone. He can't invade anyone. The worst thing he can do, it turns out, if he really wants to attack a country, is send his relatives over there to live, okay? <laughs> Undercover. <laughs> Destroy it from the inside. I wish he'd go to New Zealand, you know, but no, he goes to America all the time. So what do we have? A king who's irrelevant, distant, disinterested, posh, weird, inbred. I mean, whatever. It's just weird, isn't it? You know, that is legitimately, I'm not even slurring, that they are inbred. That's a thing. So how does Jesus being king have any reality any impact on the reality of my life? How does his royalty affect my reality? How does his divinity affect my destiny, my day-to-day? What on earth does it have to do with me? Well, my friends, it's very simple, but it's so critical you do not miss this because it's very possible in life for you to think you know who Jesus is because you correctly identify his titles because you think, well, Jesus is God, therefore I'm a Christian. No, the devil knows Jesus is God. That doesn't make him a Christian. Why is Jesus different from this guy? Please take that photo off now. Why is Jesus different from him? It's very simple, my friends. It's all about the second point I want to show you, which is purpose. Now, bear with me. This is so logical. If Jesus truly is God, that means in control of everything. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, whatever he wants. What does that mean about his birth? It means his birth is not an accident. He chose to be born. He chose the time to be born. He chose the place to be born. He could have been born in a palace, but he was born in a shed. He could have had a, you know, a Rolls Royce for his first bed, but he had a manger. Why did he do those things? <laughs> Bigger questions. But understand this. 
Jesus chose to be born. He was born on purpose. So what's the purpose? Well, we've actually already seen it. It's in verse 68 and 69. Have a look at it again. It's just one word. You see it? It's that word salvation. God has raised up a horn of salvation. Now that word's repeated three other times, three times all up in that song. Salvation, salvation, salvation. But it's also actually repeated a fourth time, but with a different version of the word. It might be simpler for us to understand. Verse 74. To rescue us. You see, the word salvation can be confusing because it sounds religious and oh well that's but no, at its very core, the word salvation means rescue, save. What is the purpose of the life of Jesus? It's not to feed the homeless. It's not to cure the sick. It's not to be an example for us about how to love one another. He does these things, it's great to do these things. But that is not why he was born. He was born at the very core of his existence, the core of his life, to rescue. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, chase it up later. Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to, who knows, save. We're not Pentecostal, but just pretend with me. Save. Save the lost. That's why he's here. He's a rescuer. I wonder, have you ever had to be rescued before? Thank you. What was I saying, me? <laughs> have you ever had to be rescued before? Or if you ever have had to be rescued, you will know that there's several things that are central to every single rescue that's ever taken place. Let me illustrate this. Around a year ago, just over a year ago, actually, there was a crew of uh, kids who just finished year six at one of the local primary schools, and they had their party after year six, whatever. And they then went to Wamberal Beach at 8.30 at night with their parents, uh, and did anyone hear the story? They, they went there at 8.30 at night, there's around 40 of them, whatever. And at 8.30pm, they decided to have a swim at Wombi. Um, yeah, you know. So you could tell if you've ever been to Wombrel, there's every good chance what would happen. And it did happen. Wombrel, well known, of course, for its, it's got a big rip and the rest of it. And that's what happened. They went in there, off, I think they were clothed, uh, and they got stuck in the water. They got taken out. Now, I got a, whole, I got a bunch of kids... And um, can I tell you, the thought of that happening to my child puts terror up me. Mainly, I can't swim, so I can't do anything about it. But the thought of helplessness watching it happen, you can see the panic. You can imagine the panic of the parents as they saw the kids getting swept out into the sea. And so a whole bunch of them jumped in to rescue their children. But unfortunately, they weren't strong swimmers. So they got stuck. And they started to get dragged out to sea as well. So the panic started to rise and there's a few people from church actually who were there at it uh, and they say the, the sound, the audible sound of screaming, people were screaming because they were watching their children die and some of them as parents went out and were dying. So the panic in the water, the panic out of the water, one or two of the people from church are good swimmers, they went out into the water but as they were rescuing the people, you might have seen this before, what did the people getting rescued do? They clambered on top of them and they, they were drowning them. They were getting mobbed by people screaming, screaming. Apparently, for those who were there, it was one of the most terrifying um, moments of their life. They can't imagine anything worse. Utter darkness. I don't mean physical darkness. I mean the thought of that. 20 people in the water all dying. However, into that darkness shone light in the form of these guys and girls. At this moment, pure coincidence Providence, 
because it wasn't normally happening this late at night. But at that time, that night, this crew of people were yet to be qualified lifeguards doing their bronze medallion. Um, and so there was around five or ten of them that were there, up there doing this training. One of the parents ran up to the life-saving club, if you know where that is. One, we ran up there and saw the light was on, got their attention. And then all these guys, now remember, there would normally be no one there. All these guys and girls, they burst out, they ran out. And uh, they weren't qualified yet, but that didn't matter. They picked up the, bo- the, life board, you know, the boards and they, they ran out and um, they got into the, the ocean and they paddled out. And they rescued everyone. Some of them had six or seven kids on the board at the same time. Now, even that was terrifying. They reflect that the, the kids were trying to drown them as they were doing it. And the head lifeguard who was there, he reflected in the press, because this was one rescue of the year or something, he reflected in the press that it was the, the, the most scary incident he's ever been involved in. The panic was palpable, that the medical help, the medical help that had to be brought, the ambulances that came, they did not just uh, go to the children and the parents who had nearly drowned, they were actually dealing with the parents who were stuck on the sand watching. Now, in every rescue, there's three things that take place. If you've ever had to be rescued, you will know this. At the centre of every rescue, number one, there is a rescuer. Someone who goes out of their depth, out of their comfort zone, who makes an action to save someone, to rescue someone. Number two, there is the rescued person, the person who is in trouble, who cannot help themselves, who cannot save themselves, who desires and needs help from another. But then finally, you've got what? What do you have? You've got the situation, the circumstance that takes place. Jesus is the rescuer, but who are the rescued and what's the situation? Well, my friends, we're about to do something that is the equivalent, spiritually speaking, of turning off the lights. Because I want to show you something in here that is dark. Dark about you, dark about me, dark about us. And it is utterly critical you see it because if you do not see the bad news of reality, you will never understand the good. Unless you see how bad things are, you will never understand how good things can be. So who is Jesus rescuing? What is the situation? Well, have a look. When Zechariah, Zechariah, sorry, when he finishes talking about Jesus, he gets down to verse 76, and he finally begins to speak about his son, John, but then he only ever speaks about John in relation to Jesus. You can imagine John the Baptist, you know. Gee whiz, Dad. But nonetheless, that's what happens. Now, I want you to take note of what he says about John's role in relation to Jesus Verse 76, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. So John the Baptist will come, prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus will come after him, but John has got everyone ready to be ready to hear from Jesus, to give his people the knowledge of salvation, verse 77, through the forgiveness of their sins. There's a whole lot in there, but I just want you to focus on that last word. Sins. Let me put it like this. Who has Jesus come to rescue? If you're sinless, Get out. We don't need you. Get out. You don't need him. Jesus exclusively came to save sinners. Your sin is a qualifying feature of salvation from Jesus. Jesus saves only sinners. What's sin? Sin is rejecting God. Saying no to him, his rule and his reign. Saying no to a relationship with him. If you've done it once, you're a sinner. If you've done it a billion times, you're a sinner. So who are those people? Don't look, okay? This is just between us. But it's actually the person to your left right now. Don't look. It's also the person to your right. It's also the person wearing your shirt, thinking your thoughts. It's all of us. All of us have sinned. All of us have rejected God. That's who needs to be rescued. Why? 
Well, look how Zechariah finishes this song. John the Baptist's job is to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. The circumstance and situation that sin sin brings to bear on all of us is that we live in a constant state of spiritual darkness. Cut off from God, not in a relationship with God as we were designed. We are facing death, eternal death, the wrath of God, punishment from God for the way we've lived. Please don't mishear me as saying, oh, I'm up here, you're down there. No, no, I'm beneath. Guys, this is all of us. It's the reality of life. When we die, we will face the judgment of God. That is the reality of your and my future. That is the darkness we find. And yet in the middle of this pitch black darkness, what do we have? Light. John the Baptist shines a light. But that light that he shines is onto a much brighter light. What is it? It is that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've said, no matter what you've seen, no matter who you've done it with, no matter whether it was today, whether it was yesterday, no matter the worst thing you've done, no matter the worst day that you've had, no matter if you're religious, no matter if you're not religious, no matter where you have been, who you are in your soul, Jesus Christ came to rescue you. Why does Zechariah, why does he have so much joy? Because he knows Jesus Christ has come to what? Redeem Sinners. What is redemption? To purchase back an enslaved person at a price. I mean, 30 years after he said this, when Jesus grew, Jesus, who chose to be born, chose to die. Why did he do that? He died for you. He died in your place. He took the punishment you deserve. Three days after that, he rose from the dead, crushing death, conquering all of it, to offer you life, eternal life. He promises, listen, he promises that if you trust in him, you will live forever. Now, if you don't see the bad news, you'll never understand why that's good news. If you view yourself as, I'm pretty good, you will never get it. But if you understand the reality, my friends, you will see that as the brightest light you've ever experienced. God loves you, not because you're good, even though you're bad. Jesus died for you, not because you're good. In fact, he died because you're not good. That is the gospel. That is Christianity. And that is the center of the life of Jesus. So that's Jesus' purpose. But what about you? What's your purpose? Well, there's only one thing we can say, but bear with me. I want to illustrate it. I want you to imagine that you're one of the people out there in Wombi. You're drowning. Okay, you're... (gasps) You're completely out of control. You're not waving. You're drowning. You know that expression. You are dying, man. But then you see the lifeguard come to you, paddling forward. And they get to you. And she puts out her hand. And she says, take my hand. Now at that moment, as you are facing the imminent death that is unavoidable, what is your only purpose in life? What is it? Well, no matter what, above all else, you must be rescued. My friends, what is the purpose of your life? That you are rescued. That is the only thing that matters. That you are a saved person. Can you imagine if the lifeguard got up to you and they, you got that and they, she put out your hand, she put out her hand to you and you said, oh no, nah, I'm just, no, nah, come back in five minutes. No, nah, no, nah, you're okay. Or you said, no, no, I, don't, I want one of the Bondi rescue lifeguards, please. Not you. You're not even qualified, man. Get out of here. Or you said, let's do it together. You can have my foot and I'll paddle myself. 
That would be utterly absurd, wouldn't it? You'd be looking at life and saying no to it. Why would it be absurd? Because in the moment of your death, you know when it's all stripped away, the only thing that matters is rescue. My friends, the reality of your existence is that outside of Christ, you can have all the money you want, all the relationship you want, you can have all the friends that you want, you can travel as much as you want, you can have the house, the spouse, the car, all your dreams accomplished. Yet if you die outside of the rescue provided to you by Jesus Christ, it's all for naught. What matters most is what happens next. And this very night, Jesus puts out his hand to you and says, take my hand. Now, it could very well be that you've known that for a very long time and you've been going, no, no, not yet, not yet. I'll come back later. (laughs) No, no, not you. It'll be you and me together. But it may be at this very moment that God, who has brought you here, is saying, take it. (laughs) Stop running. Take it. And so I want to close our time now by praying. Not a prayer like a magical prayer, just a prayer of a group of idiots, you know, talking to an amazing God who loves idiots. To take him up on the offer of salvation. And can I say, if you are a Christian, you've already got that. Can I say that I don't know what you make of Christmas. I used to hate Christmas. I, before I became a Christian, I was divorced. I got kids that I didn't see. I was estranged from. It was a really difficult time of year for me. I hated it. And yet becoming a Christian made me remember continually my identity. My identity was not failed father. My identity was not divorced. My identity was not ruined life. My identity was saved. And that's your identity in Christ. How good is that? Mm. (laughs) That's nothing better, man. I'm going to pray. If you want to pray to take Jesus up on his offer, why don't you pray with me inside your head? If you don't, then don't. But I'd love to invite you to do that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Lord, I know I am not worthy to be called your child. I know that in my heart I have sinned against you again and again. Lord, I'm sorry. I realize now that Jesus died and rose from the dead for me in my place so I could be forgiven. Father, please forgive me of my sins. I put my trust in Jesus. I take his hand of rescue. Help me, Lord, to follow him as my king and my saviour all of my days. It's in his mighty and awesome name that we pray. Amen.